Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. She was my mother, but I called her Ruby, and I believed her hands were magic. She knew how to read cards and runes, how to find meanings in the shadows and photographs. Some people believed she could cast spells for anything from bringing a missing lover back to healing sickness, but I'd never seen the proof of any of that. The only thing I knew for sure was that my mother was afraid, partly of her own fortunes. Thank you for joining me on this NBN podcast. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to author Karen Salyer McElmurray about her novel Wanting Radiance. Sweeping sighs of memory blend with lyrical prose into a circuitous and difficult path that Mira Cell Loving needs to take in order to understand two decades of emptiness following her mother's murder when Miracell was just 15. Years later, Miracell hears the ghost of her mother urging her to seek answers about who she is. Miracell travels miles across the South, searching for answers about what happened because she realizes that she can't love another until she learns to love herself. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galid. I'm so glad to get the chance to talk with you. So how did you come to write this story? The um, Wanting Radiance began many years ago when I was in um, an MFA program at University of Virginia. I first wrote it as a short story uh, that had to do with a woman who told fortunes. And then the short story itself, some years later, deepened, became more, not quite to novella length, but longer. And it became longer um, based on a life experience. The original short story was just totally imagination about a woman who worked in a roadside diner and her desire to tell fortunes. Later, when I was living in a small town in North Carolina, I went through a fairly difficult breakup in a relationship. And I was told um, lots of things. Uh, how to comfort myself, how to, uh, old, you know, superstitions, folklore, take a a boiled egg and write my lover's name on it and bury it under a full moon. And then someone else told me to go visit this woman who was a fortune teller who lived just outside of Weaverville, which I did. Um, She told fortunes by reading the shadows and photographs. And I went to her and she lived in a trailer. She you had to go in the trailer. She was not in the front room. She was in a gigantic bed in the back of the trailer. And you had to go and sit on the edge of the bed. She was paralyzed from the waist down. <laughs> and this is kind of funny. Um, later, that woman uh, who had been shot by her lover, not a good thing for a fortune teller not to know she was going to be shot by her lover. But that circumstance uh, I went back into the short story from graduate school and entered it again, and it got longer 
And then eventually, over the years, particularly the last, it took me about seven years to write this book. And these last seven years, the original short story, then the almost novella grew into this novel. Hmm. I wonder if that woman in the trailer saw that you were going to become a writer of beautiful novels and successful. Okay, but here's my real question. How can you say something about the title of the book and the town of Radiance? Originally, actually, it's, it's interesting that you asked that. The original title of the book was Wanting Inez, and that is a small town um, outside of Berea, Kentucky, uh, where I, I once lived. We were all old, you know, old wannabe hippies. <laughs> so uh, I lived there, friends lived there in this tiny town of Inez. Later, as the book grew, Inez didn't seem right. It was more of an, an intuitive thing, a gut feeling. It was more like the main character of this novel, Miracell. She was looking for an inner light that she lacked. She was looking for love she didn't know how to feel. So I took the name of another small town outside of Berea, Kentucky, which was Radiance, and I chose that instead. And it seemed it seemed to work. I really believe Miracell is looking for a kind of inner light, a radiance that she wants to be able to hold inside, hold in the palms of her hands, and sustain in her relationship with other people. Mm. How much of yourself do you see in Miracell? <laughs> I was just now working on a um, a book review for a young man whose name is T.J. Sandella. Um, his poetry collection is called Ways to Bag. He did a review of Wanting Radiance last year. And one of the things he said toward the end of the review is that it seemed to him, knowing me as he does, that I am in many ways like Miracell. I'd say that I am like Miracell, maybe in the way I just described. It took me a long time to be able to open my heart and trust others, no less trust someone, uh, sometimes friends, certainly uh, the man who became my husband, to trust love. I'm also like Miracell in that I've lived a lot of places. I've probably moved at once count counted maybe 37 times. So I've lived a lot of places and kind of been a roadie in that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on a more minor level, I think I have a, a great interest in the telling of fortunes, be um, the fortunes told by tarot or I Ching, <laughs> that sort of thing. Ah, I want to ask about that. So that's a thing. Um, what, was Miracell's mother a real seer as opposed to a fortune teller? Uh in terms of realness, the closest um, would be that woman in the trailer, the great big woman who told uh, the shadows and photographs. And there were other uh, fortune tellers I've gone to over the years. Have you ever done that, gone to, to see a fortune teller? Uh, not purposefully. <laughs> I once went to see someone who read tarot cards who lived in a little tiny house outside of Lynchburg, Virginia. And um, she read my cards and she told me that I would be meeting a, a young man soon who would change my life. And it was kind of amazing within the year. At that time, I had written a memoir about uh, my relinquishment of a child to adoption 
And that very year of that fortune teller, uh, that fortune teller's prediction, I in fact met my son. So I've had some strange experiences with the telling of fortunes. And I've just been attracted to that for some reason. It may be because I grew up in eastern Kentucky. I grew up from a uh, a family of women and others who believed in the power of magic in some ways. Hmm. Well, uh, did Miracell's mother know what was going to happen to her or to her daughter? I don't think so. I think that Okay. In many ways, maybe that's the blindness of fortune telling. We can tell the lives of others, but it's the hardest to tell our own lives and predict how our lives might go. Is Miracell at all angry at her mother? I think so. I mean, as we see Miracell at the very beginning of this novel, she's let that time go. It's almost like it had didn't happen. Um, she hasn't. She'd let her mother go until this voice of a ghost whispers in her ear one night when she's reading cards in a, in a bar and says, you know, look at me, I'm here. So she'd let her mother go. And even when she was a girl, there's a part of the novel that's told in the point of view of Ruby, Miracell's mother, and she describes Miracell becoming more and more, I guess angry would be a good word, but sort of heedless of her mother's advice about everything from what she wears to who, what boys she hangs around with. So certainly there's been um, many ways in which Miracell has cast Ruby aside. And, you know, probably the biggest way we see that, ostensibly Ruby Loving told real fortunes. Miracell doesn't. She's a pretender. She makes up her fortunes. And so that's really, you know, a way to turn her back on her mother. I'm going to take the thing you did best and I'm going to play with it and pretend. Mm-hmm. Well, why are the tarot cards so important to both Ruby and Miracell? Well, that's one of those things where we come back to me being like this book. Tarot cards have always been very, really interesting to me. And I've uh, have, I have admit uh, several sets of them. One, it's called the William Blake Tarot that predicts the futures of artists and artistry musicians. I have something called the Mother Piece Tarot, a round deck that it's particularly about women's lives. So I'm just interested in the tarot, and I'm interested in the beautiful pictures on those cards. I have a very tiny deck that I got in Paris when I traveled there, and they're just these exquisite small portraits, and they're, they seem to me to represent not only the possibility of fortune, good or bad, but also uh, time and history. Uh, I, so I I'm just... drawn to them. Karen, I just realized you said we in terms of people who read fortunes or who have the gift of second sight. So do you consider yourself somebody who has some of that? Well, now you've asked me a question that's, I've never talked about this with anybody, but I have had that experience a few times, I will admit. Mm. Um, I don't know what kind of story... One story I was just telling my friend, I think I mentioned that I'm house-sitting, and we set up yay long into the night the other night, and I was talking about, um, this is a little bit of a dark story, is that okay? Sure. So this has been about three, four years ago. 
I was doing a writer in residence gig at Holland University. So I was apart from my husband for all of spring semester. And during that time, I had just the most amazing, deeply felt, vivid dreams. So one night I was dreaming about a river and it was frozen and there were break, some of the ice had broken off and some of the river was flowing and this piece of ice what, that had broken off was being swept away. And on that piece of ice, I could see this man whose name was Danny Gear being swept away. And right then, as I had that dream, the phone rang and I answered it. It was my husband, John. And he said to me, I just need you to know that Danny Gear took his life last night. (gasps) And so... Yeah, <laughs> I do. I, now and then, and I could give you, you know, a handful of times, no more than that. I have either, I have mostly via dream known something to be, to be true or possible. I don't know. Maybe, maybe lots of people do. I don't really believe in it, but I have also sometimes come up with very weird and astounding pieces of information of that sort. But uh, who knows? It's a cool thing to think about. It okay. is. <laughs> back, to the, back to wanting radiance. How would you define Leroy Loving? Well, his name is taken from my grandfather's name, Leroy <gasps> Baston. So there's that. Mm-hmm. I think that he is a man much full of despair. I think that he wanted to be much more than he is in terms of, of a musician. He did, in fact, travel the roads and play his fiddle when uh, Miracell was young. But then he'd come back home again, and he was married to a woman who didn't, um, who was very religious, who was a fundamentalist in many ways. And she didn't believe in running the roads and playing a fiddle and, and uh, playing songs. So he was frustrated. He was caught between those two worlds, the world of his wife and the world of his own songs. And then he's a man despairing and caught in what happened to his land. And, and really, it's what happened to the land of many people that I grew up around. You know, s- suddenly there's people coming in and buying, wanting to buy up the timber rights on your land. They're wanting to buy up the coal rights on your land. And you don't have, you don't have a lot of choice in that. Um, mm. uh, so he's a man who in many ways has not had choice. Right. At the same time that he's marvelously talented. Yes, I loved that part of it. And I loved the the playing, how he played the violin. I'm not much um, of a a musician, but I did get to interview two or three people who are musicians. And that was very helpful to me in writing Leroy Loving. Yeah, I I liked him as a character. Um, Some characters immediately know who Miracell is. Why don't they tell her? That's, that's one of the hardest questions for me of all. Um, who in particular are you referring to? Delia knows immediately who she is. And um, Well, I would just first, Delia would be Deli. That's, it's a name from family, too. And that's, that's the pronunciation. Deli doesn't say, well, I think Delhi over the years has been the keeper of an enormous secret. And I'm not going to reveal what that secret is to our listeners right now. Mm-hmm. 
in many ways, it's like the, the secrets of the past for Deli are in a box and she shut the lid fast. And then suddenly she's working in her diner one day, her diner garage, the black cat. And she looks up and there's this young woman who wants a job. And she does know. And it's like, do you, you know, you don't want to say, you don't want the lid on the, on the box to fly open and have all those secrets fly out like Pandora had. And, you know, you asked earlier, what if this novel is like me and my own past? I came from, um, particularly my mother and her sisters, that family, uh, people who didn't speak truths often or would tell them slant or tell part of them, this guardedness, this tell, this not telling the truth. And I guess that's probably why that's the hardest of questions for me. Why don't people speak the whole truth? So that's part of what the book's about, maybe. Yep, that was a really good answer. You spend some time sharing other characters' perspectives. I really liked that. Who of your characters, whom of your characters did you most admire? Of all characters? Of the characters in the book, yeah. I think that really Deli Wallen, I really, really um, admire her and don't admire her. She became very real to me. She was based on a great aunt of mine. Um, I, she owned a place called the Black Cat in Allen, Kentucky, when I was a kid. And my mother uh, and my her sisters would go to that diner and we'd hang out and the aunts would smoke, you know, Winston cigarettes and they'd smoke cigarette out of cigarette and we'd sit around these booths in the diner. So Delhi came from that world that's so incredibly vivid in my memory. And I also remember Delhi as an incredibly strong woman. Her husband was a layabout, as they would say, Russell Wallen. And he drank, he gambled, he was gone a lot. And she ran that place. She ran the diner and she could work on a friggin' car, you know, mm -hmm. that women didn't do that. She was a powerful woman at the same time that she, as I described the character, was sort of caught in the world that she's in. She didn't tell the truth of things. She did, you know, a lot of things that were questionable and she, and, and that was a seat and there was secrecy. So um, my aunt, that character for me is complex. She's strong. She's incredibly vivid based on my own history. I like her a lot. Me too. And she um, was one of the first characters I wrote, actually, in that short story back at University of Virginia. Mm -hmm. Glad you kept her in. She's, she's a powerhouse. You're right. Thank you. Is, is Cody Black the right man for Miracell? I like Cody Black. I like the fact that he is patient I like the fact that he also looked at Miracell and said, you are not ready for me or anybody else. Get, go on down the road. Figure yourself out. I don't know. I mean, I leave the book, as your readers will find, and we don't know if he's the man for her. Because Miracell is like a, you know, a newborn child in this book in some ways. By the time she discovers a little bit about who she is and she opens her heart, who knows who she's ready for? Mm -hmm. Miracell says, this is a quote from your book, fathers were as much ghosts to me as Ruby's holler haints. Can you say more about fathers and also more about haints? 
more about what was the last part? H a i n t s. How is that? Oh, haints. Haints. (laughs) Well, that's the easy part. The haints. I mean, when I grew up in in Eastern Kentucky, ghosts were called haints. I guess it's what a strange word. Something that is and isn't, has been but might not be, and maybe haint is a like a taking all those letters of all those words and boiling them down into that that, something derivative. Fathers are ghosts in this book. For Maricel, our main character, she has never known who her father is. Uh, Ruby Loving, her mother, is a you know lives on the road telling fortunes. She's here and there, and when the subject of who Maricel's father comes up, she, she changes the subject. She doesn't tell the truth. So always there's been this shadow. In Miracell's life, when she's a girl, when she's a young woman, he is a ghost. And I think that when we don't know something, when we don't, I mean, many of us who have parents, we still don't know who that parent really, really is. In our heads, we have the vision of who we want them to be. We have that. And sometimes we have who they are, and, and then they're a strange mixture of all those things. And that's a that's a kind of ghost too. What you want and what you have. So I would I would say those are the haints, father haints. Yeah. Okay. Uh, why is Miracel, who is uh, not religious in any way, why is she willing to go to a revival meeting? Curiosity. I too grew up. I mean, my mother's family was pretty fundamentalist. My father's family, my parents were separated when I was 14. My father uh, went in the direction of a much more middle-class religion. I had curiosity about it. Maybe on some level I should have been a journalist or something. But I'm just so fascinated with that faith of my childhood, those fundamentalist meetings. And, I mean, it sounds kind of awful to say that I... Uh, I would go up and visit my grandmother in eastern Kentucky, and I would uh, go visit these churches. My uh, The friend whose ha- um, house I'm sitting now lived in Knoxville. Across the street from her was the Knoxville House of Faith, and I visited it. <laughs> I saw people dancing in the aisles. I've seen people speaking in tongues. I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with it because it was in my child. It was in my history. And mm. I also think there's something kind of essential about it. I think there's a big difference in religion and spirit. I think that those churches, there's something uninhibited and wild and untamed that's the spirit. And I think maybe Miracell, you know, she's a roadie. She's drawn to recklessness, to travel, to all kinds of stuff. And here's something reckless to be drawn to, something that's that's vivid and wild. Mm-hmm. That is it. So, Karen, what are you working on now? I um, I had another book come out. It's a short collection of essays come out on June 14th. It's called Voice Lessons. So in the public realm, I've been doing some readings from that, uh, getting that out into the world, as well as this novel. It's been a lot of stuff at once. But I am also working on another collection of essays, and it's called The Land Between. Mm, uh, and that's about all kinds soon? of things that are between worlds. Oh, 
including um, I used to live beside a lake in a small town in Georgia, and underneath that lake was a whole town, a drowned town. So that's what that essay's about. So I'm working on nonfiction, and I'm always working on other books in my head. (laughs) Right. That sounds really wonderful, and it was lovely talking to you, and I wish you the best of luck with all of your books. Thank you so much. This conversation was marvelous. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Karen Salyer McElmurray about her novel, Wanting Radiance. Hope you're all able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow, too. Happy reading, everyone.